For we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes when he received honor and glory from God the Father. The voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. We ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Because of that experience, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. You must pay close attention to what they wrote, for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and Christ the morning star shines in your hearts. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit, and they spoke from God. And that is the reading of the Holy Word. Well, I thought this morning I'd start off by showing you a miracle. Are you ready for a miracle this morning? Okay, I'm going to show you a miracle. Ready? This book is a miracle. This book is a living miracle. And we're going to talk about it for the next, oh, four or five weeks, something like that. And the purpose in doing that is we kind of take this miracle for granted. This is a living book. This is a guidebook. This, this, is, this is the heart of God. There's so much in this book that we have not even begun to tap. And um, my challenge is to not make this sound like Theology 101, you know, class. But, uh, and, and, you know, suck all the life out of it and make it dry and boring for you. Um, so to, to that end, I thought we'd start off with something uh, a little exciting. I copied three articles uh, from Wikipedia uh, that I would like to read to you uh, as, as it's going to apply. The first one has to do with an individual by the name of Marshall Applewhite. Anybody, that ring a bell with anybody? Marshall Applewhite? Okay, Heaven's Gate. Let me read what Wikipedia says. Marshall Applewhite told his followers that they would be visited by extraterrestrials who would provide them with new bodies. Applewhite initially stated that he and his followers would physically ascend to a spaceship where their bodies would be transformed. Still later, he believed that their bodies were the mere containers of their souls, which would later be placed into new bodies. These ideas were expressed with language drawn from Christian eschatology, the New Age movement, and American popular culture. In 1996, they learned of the approach of the comet Hale-Bopp and rumors of an accompanying spaceship, con concluding that this was the vessel that would take their spirits on board for a journey to another planet. Believing their souls would ascend into the spaceship, and be given new bodies, the group members committed mass suicide in their mansion. 39 dead. Next one I'm sure you've heard of. Jimmy Jones. Remember Jimmy Jones? The People's Temple. 
Jimmy Jones was an American cult leader, political activist, preacher, and faith healer who led the People's Temple, a new religious movement between 1955 and 1978. In what he called revolutionary suicide, Jones and the members of his inner circle orchestrated a mass murder suicide in his remote jungle commune, commune at Jonestown, Guyana on November 18, 1978. Jones and the events at Jonestown had a defining influence on society's perception of cults. As a child, Jones developed an affinity for Pentecostalism and a desire to preach. He was ordained as a Christian minister in the Independent Assembly of God, attracting his first group of followers while participating in the Pentecostal Latter Rain Movement and the healing revivals during the 1950. Jones ordered a mass murder-suicide that claimed the lives of 909 commune members, 304 of them children, Almost all of the members died by drinking Flavor Aid, not Kool Aid. Okay, Kool Aid's had a big thing on that. I don't want to be associated with that. Flavor Aid laced with cyanide. I have over 900 dead, but that's not the biggest. Let me tell you about the biggest one. John Gamagra. Never heard of him, I bet. He and several other people, and I just picked him out. There were like four leaders, but his was the only name I could pronounce. Okay, that's why I picked him. The Movement for the Restoration of the Ten Commandments of God. Now, the reason you probably never heard of this is that it was in Uganda. The goals of the Movement for the Restoration of the Ten Commandments of God were to obey the Ten Commandments and preach the word of Jesus Christ. They taught that to avoid damnation in the apocalypse, one had to strictly follow the commandments. The emphasis on the commandments was so strong that the group discouraged talking for fear of breaking the ninth commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. On some days, communication was only conducted in sign language. Fasting was performed regularly. Only one meal was eaten on Fridays and Monday. Sex was forbidden, as was soap. Okay, the date, March 17th, 2000, was declared for the end of the world, a doomsday they said would come with ceremony and finality, according to the New York Times. The movement held a massive party in Kanungu, where they roasted three bowls and drank 70 crates of soft drinks. I'm not sure why the New York Times picked that out, but they did. Minutes after the members arrived at the party, nearby villagers heard an explosion and the building was gutted in an intense fire that killed 530 in attendance. The windows and doors of the building had been barred up to prevent people from leaving. Four days after the church fire, Police investigated the movement properties and discovered hundreds of bodies at sites across southern Uganda. Other bodies were found to have been poisoned. Police stated that they'd been murdered about three weeks before the church inferno. Total deaths, 924 people. What did all of these 
have in common? Well, number one, they all called themselves Christians. Okay? Number two, their leaders taught from the Bible. Three, lots of people died. Four, they were all wrong. Now, of those four things, one of them stands out to me as outstanding and confusing and frightening. And that was this. They all taught from the Bible. Every one of them. Their leaders backed up their cultish beliefs from Scripture. Now, this is the same Bible that you and I have. It begs the question, how can we know true teaching from false teaching? Can we know for sure? Is one person's interpretation of the Bible just as good as somebody else's interpretation from the Bible? And if so, why bother even studying this book? In our first series that we're going to be doing here, Understanding the Bible, we will discover how to understand the Bible correctly so that we don't get caught up in false teachings, which inevitably leads to wrong living and in some cases, even death. So we begin today with the most basic of all teachings, and that is the teaching on the inspiration of Scripture. And I only have one main thought for you today, and that is this. All of the Bible is inspired, cover to cover. Okay, it's all inspired. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. 1 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. <clears throat> says this, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now it says all scripture is inspired. What does that mean though? Well, I like to write. Okay? I've written three nonfiction books. I got a couple science fiction books I'm working on now. I love to write. But I have not written anything, oh, for probably two years now. And the reason I haven't written anything is I haven't been inspired to write them. Now, by the word inspired there, the way I'm using it is, number one, I haven't had any good ideas. And, and, and number two is that um, I haven't been motivated to write anything. Now, that is not what the word inspired here means. Okay? That's the more common usage that we hear. The word inspired in the passage here <clears throat> doesn't mean, you know, that they came up with some good ideas and they were motivated to write. No, the word inspired here literally means God breathed. Okay? God breathed. And I'm going to use that instead of the word inspired. Okay? Scripture is God breathed. In the NIV, 
it says all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. So the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, the Bible is what we call verbally inspired. And that means the words in the Bible, in the original, are inspired of God. Not just the ideas, not just the thoughts, but the very words. And what is more is the truth is not just some of the words, but all of the words. So that the Bible is free from error in what it says. The, the passage that Don read earlier from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, says, For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God spoke through humans. That is why we call the Bible the Word of God. Okay? Why is it important to believe the Bible is the inspired word of God? Because the alternative is that if it's not the word of God, it is the word of men. If it's only the word of men, then it's fallible. Because man is fallible. If it's only the word of man, then it has really no authority. I'm under no obligation to believe it. I am in no obligation to obey it. But if the Bible is God-breathed, then it, I fall under its authority. The Bible claims to be God-breathed, but so what? Okay, what does that mean? What, what implications, what applications are there? Well, going back to that 2 Timothy 2, 16 and 17, says all scriptures God breathed and is useful. Okay? Uh, other translations have the word profitable. In, in the sense of being practical. This book is a very practical piece. Look, some people say, oh, this, you know, I'm not going to live by some 2,000-year-old, you know, piece of literature. The Bible says it is very practical. It has value. It, it, it does something good. It's beneficial. It's, it's rewarding. Now, in what way is it rewarding? Well, it lists several things here. Let's look at them. It's useful for teaching. The word teaching here has the idea of uh, that which is going to lead us to understand something that's, that's, that is applicable to our life. Not just abstract concepts. Now, if you've heard me preach before, you know, I'm no good with, with abstracts. Okay, it, it, something's got to be concrete. One of my favorite things is, okay, what does that mean? And the other one is, how do I do that? You know, just don't tell me to do something and then leave me, you know, up in the air as to what that means and, and how to do it. The Bible is useful for teaching that is going to be practical, that it, it's, it's going to be something I can trust because it's God-breathed. Now, what areas of teaching? Well, it goes on, and the next one is rebuking. The, the word rebuking here is a word that means to bring conviction. To bring conviction. Over in 2 Timothy, excuse me, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. 
Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, for godly sorrow that is in accordance to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation or deliverance. But worldly sorrow, the hopeless sorrow of those who do not believe, produces death. You know, I am convinced that's why some people do not want to read the Bible, because it brings conviction. It, it tells them what they're doing is wrong, and they don't want to give up what they're doing. Therefore, they would rather say, I don't believe the Bible. I'm not going to read the Bible. I'm not going to go to church. Because if I did, I would have to come to the conclusion that what I am doing, my lifestyle, is wrong. Because the Bible is God-breathed, we can trust it to provide conviction when we go astray. That's a good thing. A very good thing. It also says it brings correcting the word correcting here means to make a course correction. You know, it's like you're on the Titanic headed for the iceberg. You know? And, and the Bible can make the course correction that's going to avoid the collision that's going to sink your life. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a path before each person that seems right, but the ends but it ends in death. Every one of us has a path that seems right. We can go on that. And, and if that path is not corrected, we're going to hit the iceberg. We need something to tell us to get us back on path. Uh, the other thing it mentions here is training in righteousness. Now, righteousness is one of those big words. You can break it down. Basically, what it means is doing right. Okay? It, it's going to train us to do that which is right. I think in the terms of a, of a tutor or, or, or a nanny, um, you know, we're apprentices in life. And, and the Bible, this, this is the one that's going to train us to do that which is right, to live right. Now, a lot of people think that God is just one big killjoy. You know, he's got all these don'ts in the Bible, and they're going to, you know, he just wants to ruin my fun. You know, uh, no, no. The don'ts and the do's in the Bible are to avoid all the things that are going to rob us of enjoying life, not take away the things of enjoyment in life. Read the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is mostly a father talking to his son, warning him about all the things in life that could cause tragedy. Because the Bible is God-breathed, we can be trained to have this fullness of life, this real enjoyment of life. Back in our text again, 2 Timothy 2, 16 and 17. After it says that all of this, the you know, rebuking and correcting, training in righteousness, we have the two words, so that, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So that introduces the purpose clause. All that proceeded now is going to accomplish something. And what is it? That the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The word thoroughly equipped means completely equipped, wholly 
equipped, ready. It has an element of time to it. So we can be ready right now to do all the work of God. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, to equip his people for the work of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up. Oh, we have two things that equip believers to do the, the work of God. Number one, gifted individuals, apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, to the church and the word of God. Okay, I'm going to put two and two together and see if I come up with four. These individuals that God has given are to use the word of God to equip his saints. That just makes sense to me. How did this all happen? How, how did God breathe this book into existence? Well, in the passage that, that Don read, let's go back and read it again. I'm not going to talk much about it. Let's read it. It says, For we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes when he received honor and glory from God the Father. The voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, this is my dearly loved son, which brings me great joy. He's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration here, by the way. We ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Because of that experience, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. You must pay close attention to what they wrote, for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns. And Christ the morning star shines in your heart. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. The Bible is not man's creation. It is God's creation. Now, there are people in the world today who believe that if you go to church, you have to check your brains at the door. Okay? That Christianity is not for thinking people. Well, I'm here to tell you it is. And one of the greatest little books that I've ever read is this book by Josh McDowell called Evidences That Demand a Verdict. It's been around for eons, okay, for a long, long time. In this book, it, you know, it, 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 it just looks at evidence after evidence after evidence after evidence of how this book could not be the creation of man. It has to be the creation of God. I, if you're here today and, and you're really questioning, is this Christianity really real? Is this Bible really the authority? Is it really God-breathed? I'll loan you my book. Okay, come and get it. Not for Christians, not for those who have already made up their minds, but... If you're still questioning, the, the Bible is scientific, it's rational, it's logical, it's analytical. It's God-breathed. If the Bible is not God-breathed, then everything about Christianity falls apart. 
because the scriptures are the inspired word of God, we can conclude they are authoritative. Truth is absolute. It's not a matter of your opinion or my opinion. You know, truth is truth. Whatever truth is, you know, gravity is a truth. Okay, it's not a truth for you and not a truth for, or a truth for me, but not for you. You know, it's a, truth is truth. A correct view of the word gives us an accurate picture of God. I want you to think about this for a minute. If we did not have this book, what would your concept of God be? Well, if you looked at the stars, you might conclude that there was an intelligent being somewhere who is powerful and did something, but that's about all you would know about God. You would not know that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, utterly perfect. How do we know that? His word says so. We know why there's evil in the world. We know why God doesn't do something to stop that evil right now. He's going to, but not right now. We know God's plan of redeeming that fallen world. Can you imagine a world without this? Think of it. We would have absolutely no idea what God was like. We would have absolutely no idea of what God wanted from us. We would not know how to please God. We would not even know if God is good or bad, good or evil. We wouldn't know if he cared about us, let alone loved us. We wouldn't know if there were any absolutes in the world at all. We would not know right for wrong. It would all be relative, person's opinion. We would not even know who we are. If you want to know what life would be like without the Bible, look at the condition of the world today brought about by those who reject the Bible. I grew up in the 50s and 60s. That's 1950s and 60s. Okay. Not 18s. 50s and 60s. And this philosophy was kind of in its nucleus that, that everything is relative. You know, uh, you know, truth isn't absolute. But in all of that, people had to admit that some things were absolute. Some things you just couldn't get around. One of those has to do with physiology. A boy is a boy, and a girl is a girl. Okay, it's absolute. Take a look, okay? Physiology is absolute, right? What's the world saying today? Not an absolute anymore. You don't like what you are? Be something else. I grieve for today's children. A godless society is teaching them that nothing, even their bodies, is absolute anymore. Includes their gender. 
Childhood and puberty are hard enough to go through without child having no sense of their identity whatsoever. And it's not just the schools. It's in the schools, but it's in the news. It's in society. It's peer, social media, TikTok, the worst of all of social media out there, is telling them this stuff. And children today are adrift in a sea of lost identity and uncertainty just when they need security the most. I've chosen this study on understanding the Bible to begin with this because I have a list of my top three gifts of God's grace. My number one gift of God's grace is the salvation I have by grace through faith in the crucified, risen, and resurrected Jesus Christ. Gift of God's grace. God didn't have to do that, did he? But he did to show how much he loves us. Number two on my top list of three gifts that God has given us by his grace is the permanently indwelling Holy Spirit. God has put his Holy Spirit within us to give us the desire and the power to live for him. And and, and that helps us interpret this book that he gave us. And my third on my top three list of gifts God has given to us is the God-breathed book. It brings absolutes. It brings certainty into our lives. God didn't have to give us a Bible. This is evidence that God loves us. Because he gave it to us. We couldn't know anything about him or us without it. He chose us. He chose to give us evidence how much he loves us. And, and folks, this book is a cause for celebration. Yeah, we should go, wow, thank you, God. Thank you for this book. Everything we believe or do as Christians is based upon the Bible being God-breathed. Someone said this, I'm going to close with it. The word of God is an unmovable anchor in the time of storms. The word of God is a pillow to rest my head on at night. And the word of God is a rock to stand upon during shaky times. And folks, we are on shaky times. Let's pray. Father, so many times we take for granted your great love gifts to us. And Father, we thank you for our salvation. We, we thank you. We can know for sure where we're going to spend eternity. No doubt, no question, no I, I think or maybe. We can know for sure. And we know it because that is based upon your God-breathed word. Thank you for it, Lord. Help us not to take it for granted. Help us, Lord, not to just throw it on a shelf after church and, 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 and leave it there, even if we bring it to church on Sunday. Father, I pray for those who are still searching, still looking, still wondering. That's great. That's fantastic. Father, your word 
your word brings us to you and brings us the reality of your grace and your love. Thank you for that word, oh Lord. It is so wonderful. Oh, Father, thank you for your word. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.